Amen, amen. Hey, let's uh, get our Bibles out and let's do what we do. Let's get into God's Word. If you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Titus in the New Testament, we are in our series called Do Good and we're working our way. This tiny book has got a big message uh, for us and we're working our way through this small book of Titus today. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to land uh, today. You know, if you, I'm just reminding you, the Apostle Paul, uh, who's taken the gospel to the known world, has left Titus, his young helper, and on an island called Crete. It's still the island there in the Mediterranean to help them establish the churches that had started there and to raise up leaders and to help them know how to live and how to walk. And so this little book is actually a letter. It's a letter to Titus instructing them on, instructing him on how to lead the people. And basically Paul's thesis is this. He said, I know that we can change the culture of the island of Crete if Christians will live different kind of lives. His whole, his whole model for cultural transformation is Christians living differently. And by the way, I, think, I still think that works, right? If Christians live different, if Christians are exemplary, if Christians live lives different than everyone else, then all of a sudden the gospel becomes attractive because people say, man, I know what you were like and you've changed and I can't explain that other than your message about Jesus. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus is to train up these people to live differently. And so in chapter one, he talks about different kind of leadership. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then in chapter two, he talks about everybody living different kind of lives. Everyone's stepping up in their walk with God. And we talked about older men and older women and younger men and younger women. And everybody had a message they wrote on their hand uh, last week. And, and so now we're in chapter three. And I think chapter three is really answering an important question. Because Paul is saying, hey, you need to live different. Hey, you need to, you need to change. You need, there needs to be some transformation that happens in your life. And I think the question that hangs in the air is, Paul, we agree with that. I just don't know how to change. Anybody ever promised they were going to do something to change and, and couldn't ever make that happen? All right. Some of you say, man, I'm going to go back to that gym. Man, when January comes, I'm going to be there five days a week. And it was like two weeks and you're that, you're, you've forgotten. You know, you don't even know where the card is that you swipe to get in the door anymore. I mean, you, 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 you wanted to, but you just couldn't make the change. And that's all of us, that we, we want to change, we desire to change, we know we need to change, but, but how can we change and can a person really change? And so that's what we're talking about today. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here today, man, I'm so glad you're here. This is a safe place for you. We want you to come every week. We want you to get into God's word, examine the life of Jesus, but I want to talk to you about how does a person really change? This, this message matters to you as well. How does God change a person? All right. So let's look at it. Let's dive right into it now. We're just getting right into it. Titus chapter three, beginning at verse three. This is the word of God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now stop right there for just a minute. Paul starts off talking about how to change by pressing in to remind us of our need to change. 
And he's talking about how we need to change. About 16 years ago, a man named James Patterson uh, wrote a book called The Day America Told the Truth. And on the, in that book, he surveyed 1,800 people, uh, I'm sorry, over 2,000 people, 1,800 questions about uh, people scattered all across the United States. And he asked them lots of questions about their beliefs, about their morality, about their ethics, about the way they actually live their lives. It was all anonymous so they could tell the truth. And what came out of that was shocking for the American people. Uh, the, the, the report came back not good. In fact, I don't have time to get into the whole book. You want to read the book, it's still available. You get it on Kindle and, and whatnot. But uh, one of the things, that, some of the things that came out, 7% said that they would kill a stranger for $10 million. One out of seven said they had been sexually abused as a child. Uh, teenage sex and, and married infidelity uh, is rampant across the United States. Racism is still very real across the United States. He went on to say there's no meaningful relationships in most people's lives. In fact, the Chicago Tribune, in an article about the book after it came out, Kate led with this headline, Little Good News on the Day America Told the Truth. And that's really true. There's very little good news. We tend to overestimate uh, our own goodness, don't we? And, and, uh, and, and yet that is not the case. And Paul leads out in chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, with the reality, kind of a slap in the face, if you will, of our real condition before God. He says, look at this, he said we were foolish. That is, that we didn't understand who God was, we didn't have any desire for God, we weren't seeking God, we could care less about spiritual things. We were disobedient, he says. That is, we were resistant to truth. We didn't want anybody to tell us what to do or how to live our life. We wanted to live our own life the way we saw fit. Everything was right in our own eyes. He said we were led astray. That is easily uh, led astray, easy to believe a lie, susceptible to evil and evil influences. Then he went on to say we were slaves to various passions. You know, one of the greatest lies of our culture is if you can just jettison any kind of restraint, you can finally be free. Right? You just be free, man. Just live your life. Just be free. Do whatever you want. That's what ultimate freedom is. But what they don't tell you is when you live like that, you end up in bondage. You end up in slavery to your own desires and your own passions and your own addictions. Ask the addict if they're free. Ask the alcoholic if they're free. Ask the guy that's stuck on porn if he's free. He's not free. He is driven by his own passions and, he, and he's also uh, suffers the consequences, many times unintended consequences of his own actions. And so here you say, listen, one of the things that we used to be like is we used to be driven by our own, enslaved by our own passions and pursuits. And then he just kind of listed off with a little cocktail of evil here at the end, malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. He said, we just live our lives wanting what we want and fighting everybody else for it. And uh, we put on a good face every once in a while, but in our own heart of hearts, we would we'd run over uh, our own grandma if we had to, to get whatever we want. And we, and we hate other people that aren't like us, and we are hated by others. And is that not, when you turn on the news and you look at what's going on, you see all this kind of craziness happening in the world around us, you go, wow, why is somebody... Why do people hate each other so much? Why is there so much struggle and violence and craziness happening in our streets? All the shooting and protesting and all that kind of thing. It's because, this is what the Bible says, we're messed up on the inside. That's it. 
Welcome to First Colony. All right. Good news of the day. You know, we are messed up on the inside. We are, uh, our world is filled with this because there's something wrong within us. I was watching the Country Music Awards last Sunday afternoon. Luke Bryan's got a new song called Most People Are Good. And I said, no, Luke, you got that one wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even Jesus would not agree with, with that new hit song. Because what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, he said this. This is the verdict. This is the final answer. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. You see, our problem is not our exterior. The problem is not what's happened on the inside. If we just have better education, if we just have better environments, if we have better role models, if we just could change all of our externals, then we would be okay. That's not our problem. Our problem is what's in here. That's our problem. What's ticking inside of us is that we're, we're wayward and we're wicked and we're far from God. Probably the best illustration of that is Oscar Wilde's book. Oscar Wilde, philosopher, writer living in the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. He was a troubled soul himself, but he wrote a dark novel called uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, the story goes that Dorian Gray was a young socialite. He had a portrait made of himself. And uh, he was standing there looking at this portrait and he thought to himself, uh, man, I wish we could trade places. I wish that the portrait could get older and I could stay young forever. And sure enough, he was granted his wish. And so the portrait began to age over time while Dorian stayed young and vibrant. But what he didn't realize is he put the portrait in his attic and every choice that Dorian made was reflected on the portrait. So when Dorian would uh, speak evil about somebody else on the portrait, the, the mouth would twist and distort. When Dorian would become uh, angry with somebody, uh, the eyes of the, of the portrait would narrow in anger. Ultimately, in the novel, Dorian takes the life of another person and the portrait's hands are dripping with blood. And at the end of the novel, kind of the climax of the story, Dorian goes up to the attic and he sees this old, painted with twisted, distorted face and hands dripping with blood and he realizes that is what he really is like on the inside and in his anger he slashes the portrait with a knife. That's really a picture of what we're really like. The fact of the matter is we can put on a good show for other people. We can make ourselves look presentable and look good and, and your client will never know and, and that the people at the office you can kind of cover things up for a while but God really knows what we're like on the inside. God really understands and sees what we're like on the inside. If your portrait of what you really were like could be put on display, and I'm saying all of us, we would all be shocked because that's what it would be like. We are wayward to the core. The issues that we have are inside of us. And this is why it is folly to think that you can just look inward and somehow change. The idea of people say, well, I'm just going to look inward and I'm going to dive into myself and look inward and somehow I'm going to emerge a brand new person. That is complete folly because you don't find transformation on the inside. The problem is on the inside. You have to find transformation for something or someone on the outside. Somebody that can come into us from the outside and can change us because we're incapable of changing ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He said, our basic need is that we need to change, but we have no capacity to change. 
Now look at what he says. Look at verse 4. I love this. But. Uh, he said, yeah, you can't change. But. You, you can't uh, alter your circumstances. But. Uh, you can't. You don't have the power to transform yourself. But. But uh, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to our, his own mercy. I want you to put a box around the words, he saved us, all right? Just put a box around those words. That's the main thought. He said, when you were incapable of changing yourself, only God could save you. Only God could come in from the outside and do some new work on the inside of you. But he saved us. Why did he do it? Look at verse four. He saved us because of his goodness and loving kindness. Listen, when God could have given you judgment and you would have deserved it, when God could have, could have given you a, a justice and you and I would have deserved it, he could have condemned us to hell and we would deserve it. He said, it because, but instead he chose to, in his loving kindness and his goodness, to save us, to reach down, to pull us out of our self-destructive lifestyle and begin to do some new work in our life. This is only a work of God. That's why it's called by grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Uh, grace is, is God's uh, mercy and his favor toward you when you don't deserve it. That's God's grace. And God, in his grace, decided to not treat us the way that we deserve, but to show his love and kindness toward us. And by the way, he makes it very clear we don't get this grace because of good things we do. Look at what he said, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You can't be good enough uh, to be right with God. You know, there's kind of this faulty idea out here. I say this often because it's so commonplace, I figure I need to remind us of it. Sometimes we feel like, well, okay, there's these scales up in heaven, and if I'll just put enough good works in there, uh, then maybe it'll tip the scales of my bad stuff. I know my bad stuff, and, and then maybe it'll all work out. God will look at you and go, well, you know, you did a lot of bad stuff back then, but you did some good stuff later on. We'll just call it a wash. Come on in. Uh, that's not in the Bible. Nowhere. Eh, wrong. It doesn't work that way. Your own works of righteousness do not tip the scales to make you right with God. There's not enough. If you could be perfect from this point on to the end of your life, and if you could do all good works every day and quit your job and just go around doing random acts of kindness, you could not tip the scale in favor for God to let you into heaven. Just doesn't work. That. Not by your own righteousness. And by the way, not only by your religious activity either. It's folly to think that somehow you can be religious enough, and if I say enough prayers, if I go to church long enough, if I give a little bit, if I volunteer a little bit, then all that's going to make God happy, and we're all going to be good. Uh, in fact, the Bible clearly tells us that that is not the case. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he said, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So your good works don't tip the scales. And your religious activities cannot make you right with God. So how can we be changed? Well, God's got to save us. God's got to intervene. And God saves us in two ways. I want to show this to you because this is really powerful stuff. And we're laying some serious theological foundation here today that you need to understand of who God is. Number one, he saves us by showing us his mercy. Look at what it says there. He, he circled the phrase, in his mercy. 
You see that at the end of uh, or middle of verse five, but according to his own mercy. See, when, when uh, you were far from God and running from God and in your own sinful ways, that God sent Jesus Christ to this earth. And when Christ came, he came to die on a cross. And on his death on that cross, all of your sin was put on him. All that was on your portrait was put on the back of innocent Jesus. And when he died on the cross, he died for the payment of your sin. He died in your place. And in that sense, he, there was this great exchange. Your, uh, your sin for his perfection. Your uh, waywardness for his righteousness. There was this great exchange that took place. And God chose to show you mercy. He chose to not give you judgment, but to save you from that judgment. That's why Christians, we say we're saved. Saved from what? Saved from judgment. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from hell. We're saved from all that we deserve, and we've been given mercy and grace. In fact, in verse 7, if you look at it, there's a word justified in there. That's a legal term that means you have been acquitted of your uh, evil actions, and you're free to go. You are legally free. You're justified. God has shown you mercy. And listen, when God does that in a person, he changes a person. A person can't can't, can't be the same after they've come into an encounter with the living Christ and experienced his mercy. I, I, I got a good illustration of that this week. I was in lower Alabama this week talking with some pastors. And we decided to go to a halfway house in Alabama. And I met a man named James Atkins. James Atkins, in fact, there's a picture of me and James. We're in the kitchen of this halfway house this week. And uh, James told me his story. He said he grew up in a single parent home at the age of five, he was sexually molested by a neighbor. And he said it just really changed him. He, uh, he was very angry. He grew up increasingly more and more angry, more and more hostile, more and more violent. Uh, he tried to numb that anger and that pain with addictions, alcohol, substance abuse. And uh, of course, that led him to, by the time he was in his 30s, he was in prison for uh, Uh, distribution and use of uh, uh, illegal drugs. And he said, even when he was in that prison, he said, quote, I'd lay at night and often wonder if I could get out of the situation that I was in. He said, I was violent. I was mean. I was angry. I was taking my vengeance out on anybody that was around me. And he said, I got released from prison. And he said, I was uh, transferred to this halfway house called the Ark that's in uh, Southern Alabama. And he said, it was there that they told me about Jesus Christ. And he said, I I heard, I really heard this time. Maybe somebody told me earlier, but I really heard how messed up I am and how much my anger has caused so much pain in my own life and the lives of other people and in my own family. And he said, I realized that in order for me to really be forgiven by Christ, I really need to forgive this person who offended me. And I resisted it. And I resisted it. And I held on to my anger. And I held on to my pain. I held on to my suffering. And he said, I finally got to the point where I was tired of it. I was tired of what it was doing in my life. And he said, I forgave this person that offended me. And then I turned around and I asked Jesus to come into my life and forgive me for all my mistakes and all my failures and all my messes. And he said, at that point, there was something that shifted in me. He said, I felt like the anger just, just drained out the bottom of my feet. 
And all of a sudden, I, I didn't feel angry anymore, and I didn't feel uh, the rage anymore like I used to. And something had changed inside of me, Craig. He said, I can't tell you what other than God just came in and he changed my heart. And I, I experienced God's forgiveness, and I experienced God's mercy in my life. Listen, God's in the business of changing people. And, and anytime somebody says, well, Craig, I don't believe people can change. I think, well, I, if I didn't believe people could change, I surely wouldn't be in this business. Amen? Because I believe that anybody could change. And then nobody's outside uh, the, the long arm of God's grace and God's mercy. And maybe today is the day for you to change. Maybe today is the day for you to let that anger bleed out of you and, and receive the forgiveness that only God can bring. He, he changes us by showing us his mercy. But he also changes us by giving us his spirit. And I want you to see this. Look at, look at the middle of verse 5. He says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See that? Now, what he's saying here is this. That God not only shows you mercy when you turn to Christ, but he also washes you clean on the inside. He washes you clean on the inside. The washing of regeneration. What is that? That is the moment you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he washes you clean on the inside. So many times people will say, man, I go to bed and I lay in, in the quietness of my room and I feel dirty on the inside. I feel dirty for what I've done. I feel dirty for what I think. I feel dirty for what I've said. And I don't know that I can ever be clean. And here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you at the moment of your salvation. And he begins to wash you clean on the inside. He begins to take uh, that guilt and that shame away from you. This is what he, God promised to do. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit within you. Does that sound like good news to anybody in here? Somebody say amen if that sounds good. That, that, that is good news, that you can be clean. You don't have to carry around the guilt and the shame of what's happened to you or what you've done to others. He said there's a washing and there's a regeneration. The word regeneration means come to life. It's the same idea that Jesus used when he said to be born again, that you've, you're, you've changed, you're a new person in Christ, you, you become a new person on the inside. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come, the Bible says. And you become new on the inside, and that newness means that you have a new heart. You, you want spiritual things, you have a new hunger for God's word, you have a new desire to forgive others, you have a new desire to serve other people, you have a new uh, passion in worship, you have a, you have a new uh, uh, drive to be used by God and a new God. All these appetites start coming alive in you when you are, when you're changed. The Holy Spirit comes and renews you, he changes you. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one that draws you to Christ. The Holy Spirit is one that uh, convicts you of your sin. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens your eyes to the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that cleans you on the inside, that gives you a new life and a new heart and a new mind and a new you. All that happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit on the inside. Now, let me just give you a little warning here. There's some people, when they read that term, washing of regeneration, they think Paul is talking about baptism, what we just saw earlier today, when someone is baptized in water. 
And so they read it, misread it that way, and therefore they will tell you, well, you've got to be baptized to be saved. It's okay to come to faith in Christ, but you, you better get wet. Because if you don't get wet, then you're not saved. But I want you to understand that Paul is not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about what happens on the inside of a person, not what happens on the outside of a person. I mean, uh, that, that water uh, in that tank is just Texas water. Now, we're blessed that it's Texas water, amen? I mean, it could be Oklahoma water, it could be Kansas water, it could be Colorado water, but it's Texas water, amen? But it's just water. Right? That can't wash your sin away. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he washes you and renews you on the inside of you. So while a baptism is important, it is not necessary for salvation. Now, let me say this. As soon as I said that, let me make another statement. That your baptism in water is important because it is an outward expression of what God does on the inside of us. You know, you, we get baptized in, in, in water, we go down and, and back up again. Why? Not because we believe that's washing away our sin, not because we believe that somehow we're, we are earning our own salvation, not because we believe that we're trusting some kind of water to remove our sin away from us. Christ's blood did that on the cross and we, we receive it by faith at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit cleans us on the inside, but what it does do is it portrays the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the new life of Christ. And listen, just as Jesus' death paid for your sin, the resurrection of Jesus gives you the power to change. You get that? That's important that you understand that. The death of Jesus pays for your sin, but the resurrection of Jesus gives you the power through the Holy Spirit to actually live a different kind of life. And so when you are baptized, you are letting everybody know that you have died in your old way of life, you have been raised with Christ, and you're a new person in Jesus Christ. It is a celebration, it is a joy, it is a, a wonderful thing to celebrate what Christ has done. I love the way we do baptisms here, where we get a little crazy at baptisms. I don't think we can ever over-celebrate someone's new life, do you? I don't think you say, well, you got to kind of hold to tone that down. They ought to get a little too celebrated. No, no, we can't celebrate enough of what God has done in a person's life. So let me ask you something. Have you been baptized since your salvation? Has there been a moment in time where you gave your life to Christ and then after that you were baptized as a symbol of what Jesus has done in your life? Listen, there every week, almost every week, when I say raise your hand to pray to receive Christ, Almost every week in almost every service, someone raises their hand to pray to receive Christ. Some Sundays, there'll be 20. This last Easter, 54 people raised their hands to pray to receive Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? 54 people. Now listen, if you have raised your hand in, this, in the last several months and you prayed and asked Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God came within you, you're a clean person on the inside, you're right with God, but your next step is to be baptized. It's that one first act of obedience. It's that first do good thing that you do is that you go public in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and listen, why would you not want to do that with full, a room full of a whole bunch of Christians that would love you and celebrate you and excited about what God's been doing in your life? So listen, you need to do it. I, I don't know how I can say this any firmer than how I'm saying it now. In love, right? I love you. You know I love you? I'm just giving you love right now. But I'm giving you daddy love that tells you what you need to hear. And if you have not been baptized after your salvation, you need to get that done right away. 
Why? Because, number one, it's obedience to Jesus. Jesus was baptized. Jesus commanded every believer to be baptized. In Matthew 28, he said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But not only did Jesus do it and he commanded it, it's just, it's just something you should want to do because you're a child of God and you want to brag on what Jesus did in your life. And so if you've not been baptized, and that is your next step. Now, Paul, he's talking about how do we change? We need to change verse 3. And then he talks verse 4 and 5 and 6, how we change. God's mercy changes us. God's spirit changes us and cleans us on the inside. And then at the very end, he gives us the evidence for change. Just real quickly, look at it. I'm going to land the plane here in just a second. Look at verse 7. He gives evidences. He says, uh, so that, by the word, those words so that indicate uh, a, a ramification of what I just said. If this is all true, then there will be ramifications. There will be evidence of it. So that, justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I want you to underline two phrases. First one is the hope of eternal life. If you have been born again, if you realize your need, You've come to Christ in, in humility and ask him to save you, to have mercy on you. The spirit of God has come to live within you. He will give you the hope of eternal life. He'll give you an assurance that you're saved. He'll give you a joy for heaven. He'll give you a longing for heaven. There'll be something awakened inside of you that is thankful that God has saved you. And you know that you know that you're saved. You know, I used to have a pastor growing up and he was an old traveling evangelist. And he used to say, do you know that you know? But when he would say it, he would shake his jaws. So I'm like, do you know? Do you know? <laughs> kind of a little Richard Nixon thing going on. I'm not sure what, what that is. Do you know that you know? And, and that's a really good question to ask. Do you know that you know? Do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? Listen, the person that's received mercy and had been cleansed, cleansed by the Holy Spirit inside and renewed to life again is this person that has assurance of heaven. That's why Jesus said in John 10. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My father who's given to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Isn't that a great promise? You're right here in his grip. And no matter what happens in your life, you can never be taken out of the grip of God's grace. You have heaven. You have the hope of eternal life. But second evidence is that there's a desire for good works. Look at it. He said, not only that, but that you will be devoted to doing good works. When you become changed, you want to help others. Uh, James uh, Atkins that I met in that halfway house in southern Alabama, he's, once he was saved, he said he had opportunities to go work outside. He's in the uh, food industry, and he's a good cook, and he said, I got offers to, to cook in all these great restaurants all across southern Alabama. But he said, I decided to say no to that. And I stayed here at the Ark and I cook all the meals for these guys. And then at, in between meals, I tell them how terrible I was and how Jesus saved me. And how if he can do this in my life, he can change their life. See, there's something that happened in him to make him want to give his heart and his life and his best to others. Before you were uh, saved, you just lived for yourself, but now you're living for other people. Before you were saved, it was all about pleasing yourself, but now you live to please an audience of one, and that is Jesus Christ. 
And your desire is to be devoted to do good works in the community. And that's why over the next couple of weeks, we're spilling out. Our connect groups are spilling out in our community. And they're doing projects of love and good works. Why? We want to let people know that Jesus has changed us. And we want them to see it. Listen, God's in the business of taking someone who has an awful portrait of their life that's twisted and marred and stained with sin. And he turns that and he repaints it and remakes it into a portrait that looks like Christ. That he wants to shape you and make you into the image of God. The scripture says that we are mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of God. And as the spirit of God works within us, we become more and more like him. Listen, that's what God wants to do. Change the portrait in your life. He wants people to see the obvious difference that's made because of Christ. So have you been changed?